Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we speak with the state climatologist about the rare weather conditions that played a role in the state's most destructive wildfire and the chances of these rare conditions becoming more common. And we hear about an opioid anti-stigma campaign from the state that's been refocused to reach a more diverse audience. That's coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. The Marshall Fire that erupted in Boulder County on Thursday quickly became the most destructive in state history. The fire consumed more than 6,000 acres and forced more than 30,000 people to flee their homes. Officials estimate nearly 1,000 structures have been destroyed. It was a rare occurrence for December in Colorado, but many experts say similar events will become more common, fueled by extreme climate conditions. Here to talk with us about those conditions and how they set the stage for this fire is Rush Schumacher, Colorado's state climatologist and director of the Colorado Climate Center at Colorado State University. Russ, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. I want to start with a, a quote from an article in the Washington Post that characterizes the Marshall Fire as, quote, fueled by an extreme set of atmospheric conditions intensified by climate change and fanned by a violent windstorm. And the fire also came at the end of December. That's a time when we normally do not see a lot of fire activity, certainly not anything remotely this destructive. Could you put this into some context for us. In your years of work, have you seen conditions like this before? Yeah, so the the really going back to, well, we can put it in, in the picture of kind of the whole year here in Colorado. We go back to the spring. It was very, very wet. Remember, we had big snowstorms in March and a lot of rain through May. Um, and so it was really green uh, in, in that time period. And the grasses grew, you know, grew nicely. And then basically it just turned hot and dry, went in the total opposite direction as of the start of June or so. And so from June 1st up until this fire happened along the front range, it's it was as warm and dry as it ever gets. And the soils are dry. The, the grasses obviously were very dry. Um, and so that kind of was the, the, the longer term lead up to what happened. And then... In this this part of Boulder County, when these downslope windstorms happen, like what we saw last week, you know those happen every year, uh, and that particular area is quite prone to them. Uh, it's one of the the windier spots there, south of Boulder, and uh, but but this was a particularly intense windstorm as well, with winds gusting up over 100 miles an hour in that area. So it so it ended up being sort of the the combination of a intense but not unprecedented windstorm on top of conditions that were were essentially record warm and dry for several months leading up to that and you know we had very very little snow when we normally 
would have either snow on the ground or at least the snow would have moistened up the soils over the course of the fall. And so it, it really was a quite unusual scenario for, for the end of December. It really was, uh, you know, and as you noted, models show this December was unusually warm and dry along the Front Range. Uh, even though the mountains have seen plenty of snowfall, um, we've heard this year is following a La Nina weather pattern. Can you remind us of what that means and how it impacted the fire situation? Sure. So La Nina or El Nino are, are kind of the, the opposite patterns that relate to the sea surface temperatures out in the Pacific. And, you know, you, you might think that what's happening out in the ocean, Pacific Ocean isn't necessarily all that relevant to what's happening here in Colorado. But what happens is, is when those ocean temperatures change, it, it helps to influence where the jet stream goes and, and, and then affects our weather here in, in the United States and in Colorado. And dry, dry falls, especially warm dry falls, are, are pretty common with La Nina. There's some connection between La Nina winters and, and having more of these downslope windstorms. But at the same time, the mountains in many La Nina years do pretty well with snow. So it does line up pretty well with, with, uh, with the La Nina climate pattern uh, that we have in place this, this you know, fall and winter. Right. And what about the winds? You mentioned a moment ago it's not uncommon to see these gusty winds in the Boulder area in December, but they really felt exceptionally high and dangerous. Um, are these wind gusts tied at all to climate change? It's a good question, and that's one area that I think we don't know uh, all that much about at this point. Um there's a history of, of really destructive windstorms in the Boulder area back in the 70s and 80s. Um, and, and honestly, much of what we know about these windstorms comes from studies done by scientists in, in Boulder at, at the National Center for Atmospheric Research and NOAA. And so, um, you know, so it, it's really this, this kind of unfortunate uh, overlapping of circumstances in that much of much of what we know scientifically about these types of storms comes from the Boulder community. And that was the community that, you know, including many atmospheric scientists that that was was most affected during this uh, during this fire last week. We're speaking with Russ Schumacher, Colorado State climatologist. Russ, I feel like one of the most heart-wrenching aspects of all of this is just the very, very late snowfall. If the snow had fallen just one day earlier, this devastating fire would have behaved very differently, and I think the destruction would have been so much less. Now that we've had snow, does the risk end with that precipitation? Certainly in the near term here for the next, you know, week or two, um, you know, it looks like we're going to have some more strong winds here later this week. Uh, and but the, you know, the fire risk certainly is, is much, much lower now because we have snow on the ground in all of these places. But that being said, um, you know, we've seen how quickly we can transition from from wet conditions back to warm and dry and windy. And so in, you know, in the near term of the, you know, coming weeks or month, I think we're, we're now in good shape. But as we go toward the spring, 
La Nina Springs also tend to be uh, rather dry on average. Last winter was also La Nina and last spring, and, and that was an outlier because it was extremely wet. But a lot of times we do see the, the dry, windy conditions uh, in the spring during La Nina. So we'll have to wait and see what, what that brings. But, you know, we certainly will have to be prepared for, um, you know, the, the rapid shifts that we, we, we know are, you know, part of our climate here in Colorado, but that seem to be you know, shifting even more rapidly in many cases as the as the climate warms. Right. And, you know, we used to talk about fire season ending in September. In climate circles, are, are people talking about a year-round fire season now? Yeah, I think what we've seen in the last couple of years here with the record wildfire season of 2020 extending you know, with the fires even starting in mid-October and extending into to late October, um, and then what we saw last week with the Marshall Fire, I think that that is the 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 thing that that you know studies are showing that as the climate warms, the fire season expands, or you know we, we may say that it, it's not really a fire season anymore; that we have to be prepared for it uh, at any time of year. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's an area with where the scientific research is just kind of becoming more and more robust, showing that as the, the climate warms, uh, what happens is, is the, the air is thirstier for water, essentially. So think of this fall here along the Front Range. Uh, we had very little precipitation. Uh, so, so there's that part of it. But then the fact that it was so warm puts even more stress on the soils, the vegetation, uh, and everything else, and and dries things out, and so that's what we're seeing. You know, the the main focus has been in the forested areas, like the fires we saw uh, in 2020, uh, in in those areas that you sort of think of as the places where wildfires happen up in the in the forested uh, foothills and mountains. But now I think this Marshall Fire will will require additional sort of rethinking of the the types of scenarios that can happen here in Colorado. Right. A lot of the structures lost in the Marshall Fire, and the latest estimates put that number at nearly 1,000, which is an unusually high number. And these were in places we would consider suburban or along the urban corridor. What does that tell you about who's at risk of firsthand impact by a wildfire now? Yeah, it's right. I think it... it Last year, or in 2020, we, you know, we all saw the smoke coming from the fires and the, the terrible air quality, and, and in some cases, the fires themselves up close, and, and it can seem somewhat distant from here along the Front Range, even, you know, we know it's, in terms of distance, is not that far away up to where the Cameron Peak or the East Troublesome fire burned, but it also sort of felt like we have the barrier of the you know, the the forest there. Now with the what we saw in the Marshall Fire, seeing how fast those grasses uh, burned and how quickly that fire spread in the extreme winds, uh, it, you know, I think all of us here that live, you know, even in, in these built up suburban areas, we have to look at that and, and, you know, know that, you know, it may not happen next year or even in in 10 years or something like that but at least we need to be be ready for the idea that that these kinds of fires are are possible uh when you have 
you know, an, a, a region of, of dry grasses or, or other dry fuels that are to the west. And, and if one of these big windstorms happens uh, in these dry conditions and a fire gets started, that they can they can move so rapidly. And I think that was, you know, one of the other just shocking and terrible things from the fire the other day is the stories of people who had uh, only, you know, a few minutes to to evacuate. Just minutes. I know. It was harrowing to watch. I, I feel that to see the most destructive fire in state history at the end of December seems like it could be a, a sort of a wake-up call. Um, moving forward, just and I want to start out big picture and then go a little smaller, but on a bigger policy scale, statewide or at the national level, are there climate actions or policies that you uh, and other climate professionals would want to see addressing the threat of winter wildfires that are perhaps fueled by climate change? Ooh, yeah, that's a good question, but I'm, I'm not sure I have a great answer for that one. Um, it's, you know, I think around here, the, the, you know, at, at the very basic level, just being aware of, of these sorts of that these sorts of things can happen, which I'm sure the events of last week will will really crystallize that in people's minds that these are the sorts of things that can happen. But in terms of a of a policy prescription, that's a little bit outside of of my area. Obviously, we want to, you know, through you know society's decisions to to reduce the impacts of climate change going forward, and so there's that aspect of it but in the near term that you know even if we stop greenhouse gas emissions tomorrow it's not like the risk of fire in Colorado is going to go away uh you know so quickly and so certainly in the in in those you know middle middle term kind of time periods uh you know we we do need to be prepared for for this this fire risk right and are there things then on that note that we can do on an individual level to prepare and to keep ourselves safe and, you know, improve the situation? I mean, certainly in the, you know, in the foothills, in the in the forest where where we usually think about wildfires, um, there's a lot that that people can do, you know, the the talk of, of building defensible space around your property so you don't have those fuels so close, so close to to structures and things, um, but those are usually not the sorts of things we think about in the suburban type areas. Uh, but maybe maybe we need to be a bit more uh, cognizant of of those issues to to make sure that um, you know even in these built up suburban areas that to to try and limit the 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 fuels that could take one of these fires uh, from you know a a forest fire or a grass fire in this case, and, and burning into neighborhoods like we saw last week. Russ Schumacher is Colorado state climatologist and director of the Colorado Climate Center at CSU. Russ, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thanks so much for having me. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. 
More than 100,000 Americans died of drug overdoses from April 2020 to the same time in 2021. That's the most ever recorded over a 12-month period, according to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And Colorado has certainly not been immune. The state hit its own record in 2020, including 956 people who lost their lives to opioids like prescription pain pills, heroin, and fentanyl. In 2018, the state launched an anti-stigma campaign called Lift the Label, encouraging those abusing opioids to seek treatment. But it was primarily reaching one group. As KUNC's Stephanie Daniel reports, it's been recently refocused to reach a more diverse audience. And just a note, this story contains mentions of drug use and addiction and may not be suitable for all listeners. Keith Hayes was 12 years old when he first tried marijuana. Alcohol soon followed, and before he knew it, he was hooked on opiates. Then in my 20s, I got prescribed some, uh, I think some Vicodin or some Percocets for a toothache or something. And um, I liked how it made me feel. He started taking other people's prescription medications and bought pills on the street. His addiction lasted for over a decade. As my life continued to spiral and spiral out of control, I found myself in jails and prisons, uh, institutions, hospitals until I was hopeless. Then Hayes says he was finally sick and tired of being sick and tired. His probation officer told him, if you're serious about getting sober, you should go to a treatment facility. But it was hard to find a place. Me and my mom, we looked all over trying to find me treatment. I didn't have any insurance at the time, so I didn't have any resources. Ultimately, he got into a free program at the Salvation Army and has been in recovery ever since. But the barriers to finding treatment went beyond knowing where to look. Black people don't get into recovery like that, right? Like, hey, it's it's ingrained in our community and the fabric that if you need help, you need to figure it out for yourself, right? It also goes back to the, hey, you're a man, right? And men got to take care of things on your own and you don't ask people for help and you got to figure it out. The stigma around admitting he had a problem and needed help kept him sick for a long time. But now he's sharing his story. They were heartbroken. You never know what your family is going through when you're out there in the streets and they feel just as hopeless as you feel in active addiction. That's from a video titled Supporting a Loved One, featuring Hayes and three others in recovery. It's one of several new ads from Lift the Label, the state's opioid anti-stigma campaign. It is important that this campaign reach a more diverse audience. Liz Owens works for the state's Office of Behavioral Health and co-created Lift the Label. She says the revamped ads feature people from different genders, religions, races, and ethnicities. Because we know that so many people in our state are not able to access treatment, and then in particular um, for communities of color, for LGBTQ plus Coloradans, they face even more barriers to accessing treatment to begin with. According to state data, drug overdose deaths in 2020 were the highest among Black, American Indian, and Alaska Native people and men. Lift the Label launched in 2018. The website includes information from defining opioid addiction to treatment resources and how to support a loved one who's struggling. But Owen says the most impactful part of the public awareness campaign are the personal stories. The power of Lift the Label is really authentic storytelling. So everybody in the campaign is from Colorado and has a story to share, whether it's 
their own story of recovery, their story of potentially losing a loved one, how stigma impacted their um, ability to get treatment, their ability to seek recovery. After the first year, Owens and her team looked at data on digital advertising and found 92% of impressions were reaching white people. Which, of course, you know, just contributes to stigma, to access just compounds all the issues. To target a more diverse audience, the team began a multi-year equity research and campaign improvement process. It started with a literature review and looking at existing data. Then they conducted focus groups and interviews with people from diverse communities and worked with a researcher at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus who specializes in structural stigma. They made changes based on what they learned, including misinformation about medications for opioid use disorder. That's too expensive. That's not for me. That's replacing one drug with another. Even though there's all this data about it being a very effective form of treatment, like the myth, the stigma, it's all extremely pervasive. The 2021 Colorado Health Access Survey found about 80,000 Coloradans didn't get the drug or alcohol treatment they needed this year. Stigma and cost were the most common reasons, and cost is highlighted in one of the new ads. It features Dr. Leslie Brooks, who heads up addiction medicine at a Larimer County health provider. You can help support your loved ones by asking questions of your health care provider about financial assistance programs like Medicaid and Medicare. Through their research, Liz Owens also learned that people didn't want to see just one face in an ad because that ties addiction to a particular community. People wanted to see a multitude of faces, which is really reflective of the principle that we started with, which is the idea that addiction can happen to anyone and recovery is possible. And that's where Keith Hayes comes in. There's a lot of different ways to find recovery, and you got to find the treatment that is best for you and your family. The 39-year-old heard about Lift the Label last spring. After completing the interview process and learning more details, he was in. I'm so grateful that I did because it is helping a lot of people. I'm literally getting a phone call every day from somebody saying, hey, I've seen you on TV bringing awareness about the stigma of addiction. Hayes has been sober for over four years now and is director of recovery at a recovery high school in Denver. His journey has become an inspiration for others, including Black people who have reached out to him. Do you have any resources that we can use to get me into treatment. I've been able to use my resources and help them get their journey started. So, I mean, that is exactly what we're aiming to do. While Lift the Label urges people to seek help, the state is continuing to expand access to treatment, and the program is still being evaluated. The next step is targeting ads and trainings to medical, behavioral, and law enforcement professionals so they can better treat those with substance use disorder. Stephanie Daniel, KUNC. As we just heard, the Lift the Label program is still being evaluated and other changes could be on the horizon. As part of her reporting on this story, Stephanie spoke with Daniel Goldberg, one of the people who has worked with the state to evaluate the campaign and to propose less stigmatizing changes. Goldberg, an associate professor with the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus Center for Bioethics and Humanities, explained some of the structural components of stigma and the institutions that are largely responsible for how many Americans view drugs and drug use today. For people who experience stigma, uh, that we tend to experience it in an intersubjective, individualized way. So, you know, I went to see the healthcare professional and healthcare professional stigmatized me. You know, I went to the benefits office and the person behind the desk stigmatized me, right? I went into the workplace and one of my colleagues stigmatized me. So we tend to think of stigma on this individual level. 
But actually, that's a downstream manifestation of an upstream phenomenon, right? And the work on stigma and the best evaluations we have of stigma are very clear that stigma flows from upstream structures, things like power and oppression. So things like race and class and gender and ability or disability status, you know, these same oppressions really that are driving differences between people are the ones that actually create stigmas that separate in groups from out groups, which is what stigma is basically. And so a lot of my work was thinking about with Lift the Labels, thinking about what can we do with such an excellent campaign like Lift the Label that moves us as close as we can to models of, of moving the needle on stigma structurally, changing some of the structures that drive stigma against marginalized and victimized and vulnerable groups. Because stigma is structural, one of the things we'll expect to find is stigma living in structures and institutions. Which structures and institutions? Well, some of the obvious ones and the ones that I study are our laws and our policies, which deeply stigmatize persons who use drugs or persons who live with substance disorder, substance use disorder. So for example, there are a lot of laws and policies that make it very difficult for people in active recovery to actually get jobs. For example, they'll ask if anyone has had histories of these kinds of things, or more problematically, they'll deny um, an ability for someone to be employed by a state office, for example, if that person is using a scheduled substance, which is a problem because for some people in active recovery, for example, methadone is a scheduled substance, right? So it means that people in active recovery are being barred from actually getting jobs, which is probably not something we want to do from a policy perspective. And that's deeply stigmatizing, right? There are all sorts of laws that regulate where recovery homes or assisted living facilities can be located, right? There's a lot of what's been referred to as nimbyism, not in my backyardism. People like these things. They just don't want them in their neighborhoods, right? Um, and so that is its own form of stigma. It's basically barring persons who are using drugs, persons who live with substance use disorder, persons who are in active recovery from the social spaces that could help them live meaningful, flourishing lives, whether they're using drugs or not. That was Daniel Goldberg, an associate professor with the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus Center for Bioethics and Humanities. You can find more of this interview at our website, KUNC.org. That's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, we continue to look at the impacts of federal water cutbacks across parts of the drought-stricken West. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman and Tess Novotny. Our digital editor is Jackie High. Brian Larson is our executive producer. I'm Erin O'Toole. Thank you so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. KUNC.